0: Hello and welcome back to the UCC Obstetrics and Gynaecology Masters Series podcast. This is a podcast series aiming to help medical and midwifery students ace their obstetrics and Gyne exams. My name is Jill Mitchell, and I'm part of the UCC Masters class, and I'm working as an SHO in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Today, I'll be discussing the very important topic of obstetric cholestasis. The advice given in this podcast is in line with the RCOG guidelines. Let's begin with a clinical case. You are on a clinical placement in the emergency department of a busy maternity hospital. Your next patient is Mrs M, a 22-year-old prima who is 30 weeks pregnant today with a singleton pregnancy. Her presenting complaint is a worsening itch for the past two weeks. On further questioning, she reveals that the itch affects her arms and legs but is worse on the palm of her hands and the soles of her feet. It is worse at night and prevents her from sleeping. She is otherwise well, with no abdominal pain. She has no known medical conditions. Specifically, she has no history of hepatitis C or gallstones and she has no family history of obstetric cholestasis. She is not currently taking any regular medications. On examination, she appears well. She is mobilizing freely and her vital signs are all within normal ranges. Her urinalysis is negative. You note some superficial excoriations, but on careful inspection, there is no rash. You present your findings to the registrar, who after reviewing the patient, agrees with you that this is likely to be obstetric cholestasis. She explains that obstetric cholestasis affects approximately one in 200 pregnant women, and that the paritis typically begins In the second or third trimester of pregnancy. She asks you to assist the midwife to take blood from Mrs M to measure her LFTs including a fasting bile acid level. She explains that the upper limit of pregnancy specific ranges should be applied and that for transaminases gamma glutamyl transferase and bilirubin the upper limit of normal throughout pregnancy is 20% lower than non-pregnant range. As you and the midwife prepared to take Mrs. M's blood, the registrar explains to the patient that her symptoms suggest a diagnosis of obstetrical cholestasis. She explains that this is a condition that affects your liver during pregnancy and that she would like her to have a blood test done to check the function of her liver. As you expected, Mrs. M's blood shows raised AST and ALT. Her fasting bile acid level is elevated at 30 micromoles per litre. The registrar advises you that other causes of parietis and liver dysfunction must be outruled. She orders a viral screen for hepatitis A, B and C, Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus and a liver autoimmune screen for chronic active hepatitis and primary biliary cirrhosis. Mrs. M's subsequent viral screen and autoimmune screens are negative. She receives a liver ultrasound which shows no abnormalities. Mrs. M is diagnosed with obstetric coldestasis. The registrar explains the diagnosis in full to the patient and answers all questions. She informs her that we can give her treatment to help relieve the itching and that the itching will then get better by itself after the baby has been born. Mrs. M is commenced on ursodeoxycholic acid, topical emollients and water-soluble vitamin K supplements. You reference the BNF. To find that ursodeoxycholic acid is a hydrophilic bile acid and is regarded as first-line treatment for obstetric cholestasis, it improves paritis and liver function in women with this condition. You read that vitamin K is a fat-absorbable vitamin and that fat absorption may be suboptimal in obstetric cholestasis. You remember that vitamin K has an important role in coagulation. The registrar takes you aside to talk about obstetrical after the consultation. She informs you that Mrs. M will be linked in with a consultant-led, team-based service and should deliver in a hospital unit. She explains that the condition has been linked with an increased incidence of passage of meconium, premature delivery, fetal distress, delivery by cesarean section and postpartum hemorrhage. She explains that the risk of stillbirth in pregnancy affected by this condition is known to be above that of the general population but that the, the degree of risk has not yet been determined but is likely to be small. She explains that women with persistent parietals and normal LFTs should have their bloods monitored every once to two weeks. You follow Mrs M's case throughout the remainder of her pregnancy. She is managed as an outpatient and her LFTs are measured weekly. Her LFTs improve slightly as her pregnancy progresses, which you note is likely attributable to the erosodeoxycolic acid. Mrs M receives careful, detailed counselling regarding the risks and benefits of induction of labour after 37 weeks. You learn that the widely adopted practice of offering delivery at 37 weeks of gestation, or at diagnosis if this is after 37 weeks, is not evidence-based. As gestation advances, the risk of delivery, namely prematurity, respiratory distress, and failed induction versus the uncertain risk of stillbirth associated with continuing the pregnancy may justify offering women induction in labour after 37 plus zero weeks of pregnancy. Mrs. M is induced at 38 weeks. She has continuous fetal monitoring throughout her labour in keeping with the RCOG guidelines and gives birth to a healthy baby girl with normal guys by vaginal delivery. Three weeks later, you are spending the afternoon in the day assessment unit. Mrs. M has returned for a checkup. You are delighted to hear that her itch resolved within one week of delivery. Her serum amino and fasting bile acid levels have normalised. She is counseled that this condition will not cause her to have long-term health implications but that she has an increased risk of developing obstetric cholestasis in subsequent pregnancies, as this condition has a recurrence rate of 45 to 90%. She is counseled to avoid oestrogen-containing methods of contraception if possible. You learn that this is because some research suggests that the hormones oestrogen and progesterone affect the liver's ability to cope with bile acids, leading to cholestasis. This theory is supported by the observation that obstetric cholestasis is more common in multiple pregnancy, where the levels of estrogen and progesterone are naturally higher. So, in summary, obstetric cholestasis is a cholestatic disorder affecting approximately 1 in 200 pregnant women. The paritis typically begins in the 2nd or 3rd trimester of pregnancy, and AST, ALT and bile acid levels are elevated. It is associated with adverse maternal and fetal outcomes including an increased risk of passage of meconium, premature delivery, fetal distress, delivery by caesarean section, postpartum haemorrhage and stillbirth. Other causes of paritis and deranged LFTs must be excluded. The hydrophilic bile acid, ursodeoxycholic acid, is regarded as the first-line treatment this condition. Patients are often also treated with topical emollients and vitamin K supplementation. Once a diagnosis of obstetric cholestasis has been made women should have their LFTs measured weekly. A discussion of the risks and benefits of induction of labour should be had at 37 plus 0 weeks of pregnancy. As gestation advances the risks of the delivery versus the uncertain risk of stillbirth associated with continuing the pregnancy may justify offering women induction of labour after 37 plus 0 weeks of pregnancy. Women should have their LFTs monitored postnatally to ensure that they have normalised and they should receive postnatal counselling. Obstetric cholestasis has a high recurrence rate of 45 to 90%. And this brings us to the end of today's podcast. I really hope that this podcast has helped you to better understand this interesting condition. See you again soon for more UCC Obs and Guiny Masters podcasts.